welcome, welcome everybody to the Hockey Think Tank podcast brought to you by the HockeyThinkTank.com, a website for all players, parents, and coaches to go to get a little bit of education and a little bit of inspiration regarding the greatest game on the planet. What an episode we have for you guys here today. We are bringing back onto the Hockey Think Tank podcast, one of the smartest hockey guys that we know, Patrick O'Sullivan. And in the previous podcast that we had with him, we went a little bit more into his journey into uh, him becoming an incredible NHL hockey player, uh, somebody that we all knew as kids growing up, growing up in the States. Um, but this time we got to talk in some hockey and he's got a great mind for the game. He works in hockey development now from the youth all the way to the professional levels and, uh, just an awesome conversation that I think any hockey person is really, really going to enjoy. But before we do get over to Patrick O'Sullivan, let's bring on a one Jeff J who Lavecchio Vex. What's on, what's going on today, man. Ohio goes, I must that means good morning, even though it is night, because I don't remember <laughs> what night was in Japanese at the moment. Um, doing great, brother. Doing great. Uh, really excited to have uh, O'Sullivan back on the podcast. Like, I love the way this guy thinks. First of all, I love his Twitter. I love his Twitter. I love that he's himself on Twitter. And, you know, if he's going to rattle some people, uh, rattle some cages with some of the things he says, like, it's not like it's uh, he's trying to, but he's just saying what higher level hockey minds think sometimes um and people that have been exposed to the higher levels of hockey and he just puts it out there and he's like well this is what i think and you don't have to agree with it but this is what i think and how a lot of other you know guys who played at the high levels think and um so anybody who's listening to this and you don't follow o'sullivan on twitter like definitely give him a follow because i really enjoy his tweets for sure totally and actually we go through one of his tweets on uh on the podcast where he talked about um, if you're a fast skater and that's your best attribute, like that could be a hindrance to your hockey development. And that, that confused, I think a lot of people, and we got to go through it cause I am in total agreement with him and knew what he was talking about when he said it. And so getting the chance to have him explain it in more than 280 characters was, was fun. It was a good, good topic to talk about for sure. Yeah. And I mean, that's something that you and I have talked about on the podcast. And I, I wish that I had a coach like him who would have forced me to do other things because I was that guy that he was referring to in the tweet, you know, like that was my best attribute. And so because I was able to do that, you know, I didn't have to work on other skills. I didn't learn other skills and wasn't forced to. And, you know, so I, I was glad that we got to dive into that and, and really talk about it. So anybody that's, that was, had a problem with that tweet or didn't understand it, they'll, they'll get to understand kind of where he was going with that uh, in more depth on this podcast. Yeah, for sure. We talked about coaching outside the comfort zone. I mean, this whole, this, this was dedicated to hockey and hockey development. And I think anybody that's interested in making their players better, uh, becoming better as a coach, thinking about things from a different, different standpoint, I think um, this is one that people are really, really going to enjoy. And yeah, he's got an honest, refreshing approach to it too where he's, he's, you know, he just tells it like it is. And uh, he's very, very smart. And I learned a ton on this podcast episode. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, obviously like he, he was a super skilled guy playing the NHL for a long time, put up unreal numbers and um, you know, everything that he battled with, with his childhood and stuff like that. I mean, he's, he's obviously a guy that's got, you know, just, he's got a great story and he had to persevere through a lot of demons and, 
um, you know, retired early and now he's, now he's back in the game, giving back coaching his kids and, and in the development world. And, um, you know, been on our podcast a couple of times. We haven't had many return guests on the podcast and he's one of the few. So, uh, yeah, I love that he listens to our podcast and he <laughs> wanted to come on. He wanted to come back on like so cool. Having guys of this caliber come on the podcast and share their knowledge for free. Like we don't pay our guests to come on. And for a guy like him who's working with unbelievable NHL players and, and has an unbelievable mind and has been through what he's been through. He wants to come on and share with our listeners for free things that he's learned. And I just love that about the hockey community. And I love that about uh, Patty O'Sullivan. <laughs> Dude. Yeah. This pod, this podcast has been incredible from that sense. Like, you know, we get so much out of it, but it's really interesting because literally last week, you know, I was, I, I was on a phone call with an assistant GM in the NHL and he told me that he listens to the podcast. And then also this weekend, our team was in Boston and we played against three different teams and I was wearing a hockey think tank hat and, two of the coaches that we played against came up to me afterwards and they had heard me like, you know, talking to my team and stuff. And they were like, are you Topher? Like we listen to your podcast. Like, and so it's just really cool. And that's what I think is awesome about the podcast and the guests that we bring on is we're able to, you know, we're able to bring a lot of things out there for not just the higher level hockey people, but also the youth hockey coaches and the youth hockey parents and players that are just looking to get a little bit better and get a little bit more perspective. And um, like for us, again, that we talk about what's your why all the time, every time that we get an email, every time that we get a text or a direct message or somebody finds us in the rink and, and gives us that feedback, like it just fuels us to do this even more. And, and that's why we do it. We want to give back to the hockey world and, um, at the same time, we have a lot of fun doing this for sure. And, uh, and we feel like we get a ton out of it too, bringing these guests on like, like Patrick, it's, it's, it's awesome. Yeah. I mean, we're learning just as much as our guests are, or, or as our listeners are like, we're, we're lucky to be able to be in the driver's seat talking to guys like, like Sully. So um, this is a great episode. I think people are going to get a ton out of this and we have a ton of fun with Sully too. He's an absolute beauty, such a good dude comes on immediately chirps me for wearing a shirt, uh, which I thought was great. I don't even know if that was in the podcast. I don't think was it was. Pre- yeah. yeah this is a pre-talk where he's just chirping me for, I usually get chirped for not wearing a shirt. Now I'm getting chirped for wearing a shirt because of you. Uh, so I thought that was pretty funny, but this guy's a beauty and everybody's going to love this episode. Yeah, for sure. I do want to send a congratulations because we actually, talked about it on the podcast so we recorded this podcast before the nhl draft happened um we we did it on draft day um in the afternoon um but we talked about how impressed we are with ryan hardy and what they've done with the chicago steel and that whole staff there and we talked about how we know they were going to get a lot of kids drafted they had eight kids drafted from their ushl team into the nhl draft that is insane from a talent identif- uh, from a talent identification standpoint with Ryan and his connections getting those people there and then for his coaching staff with Brock and Desi and and uh, and Mike Garman and and Belfry and Nicholas and they just hired Noel Needham too uh, Greg Moore's now in, in with the Marlies in the AHL Tristan Musser who is I can't I don't know what his role is or was now but he just got hired f- uh, for Buffalo with the Sabers like I mean it's just an unbelievable operation that they have going on right there so we wanted to congratulate them on the work that they've been doing uh, if you haven't listened we had Ryan on the podcast uh, I don't he was I don't guess somewhere between 20 and 30 maybe um so go back and listen to that one it's one of our most downloaded for sure another guy like patrick who thinks outside the box and not afraid to tell it like it is too so um that was a fun one but eight draft picks from a ushl team man that's 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 impressive 
I love it. And, and Hardy is one of my favorite people in the hockey world. I mean, I see this guy, well, when I was coaching the last two years, I'd see him at all the events and all over the place. We play in Chicago, we play in Michigan, we play wherever we're playing. He was always there, you know, watching and man, like I, I don't want to pump his tires too much. I know he listens to podcasts a lot because we chirp each other a lot, but I actually love this guy. I love the way that he thinks. And he, he thinks very, very similarly to O'Sullivan where they kind of look at something and it's like everyone else is doing things the way they've always been done because that's the way they've always been done. And the two of them are like, Hmm, um, it makes a lot more sense to do it this way. If we just like break things down and it works. Like it's hilarious. Like all these people are always, well, it's always been done that way. You know, we do it this way. We hire the same people. And they're like, no, 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 no. It doesn't make sense to me in my brain. I'm going to go this way. And it works. Like it's so cool. And I love to have people who think differently and think outside the box and to have eight guys drafted, like, holy crap. That is, that is amazing. And a testament to what they're doing in the Chicago steel. And, and I also want to say a, a huge congrats to one of my clients who I train in the gym the past three years, uh, Jakob Dobis, a goalie who also plays in the USHL for the Omaha Lancers, also where I played. And uh, he got drafted to the Montreal Canadiens. He's a phenomenal kid, a massive goalie, um, and just a great, great person. Came over to the U.S., didn't know any English, left home at 17 years old, uh, going over to the U.S. to a place he'd never even been before, and uh, wound up in St. Louis for two years. And now he's in the USHL, and he just got drafted. So, very cool story, very cool kid, and I'm super happy for uh, for Dobie. So congrats, mate. You're like a goalie factory there in St. Louis. Got him, Joseph Wall. Oh, yeah, I got it. Got Tyler Parks, one of our most Tyler downloaded Parks, episodes. Parks yeah, yeah. Dude, I, Nicole Hensley, you know, oh, one, oh, somebody wow, else's name. Yeah. Dude, I train a lot of sick goalies. I love <laughs> trading goalies. It's actually – trading goalies is, like, my favorite, to be honest with you. I think there's so many things you can do off the ice that just make sense. Again, doing things differently I try to do because they make sense to me. And um, I don't know, I guess it's working. But, yeah, Doby's a beast, and I'm super happy for him. Very cool, man. That's awesome. Um, also do want to talk about, uh, uh, the, the, what's the word, the the recognition, but just the, everything that I've gotten from feedback from the parent survival guide that we put out last week has been incredible. Um, I, we really appreciate that kind of feedback. We had so many people buy the parent survival guide uh, last week when we put it out there on Monday. And uh, we just think it's an incredible resource for all parents of all levels, whether you're mites, uh, have a kid, have a kid in mites, novice, all the way up into midgets, all the way into junior hockey. You know, we pr- try to provide some, some guidance and try to provide you some perspective that can help you enjoy your, uh, your experience as a, as a hockey parent and also help you guide your kid on their youth hockey journey, uh, whether they want to be a house league player or whether they have aspirations of playing at the highest levels. And so Jeff helped us out on it. Um, but can't thank everybody enough who bought that. Uh, we're going to continue to have the deal, uh, the 20% off deal. So if you go to the hockey think tank.com, there's a button that says parents, it'll take you right to the parent survival guide. It's 25 bucks, but we're given, uh, for all of our podcast listeners, given 20% off. So it's just 1999. And, uh, all you have to do is put the code hockey in at checkout and you get it for 1999. It's just quick, easy to use little parent survival guide for all hockey parents out there, uh, trying to de-stress the hockey world for you. Um, so go to the hockey think tank.com today and get that. Uh, but just thank you for all the feedback. Thank you, everybody that purchased it. We really, really, really appreciate it. And this thing is like, it's so massively important. Like, I can't tell you, 
uh, how many conversations, calls, texts, emails that I get, even before I did the podcast, just when I was in St. Louis, just helping my clients, you know, in the off season from parents with the exact same questions over and over and over again, because you're going to hit all of these certain, I don't want to say roadblocks, but all these certain pivotal points in your hockey career as a parent trying to help your child and the child going through it, where it's things that everyone goes through. And so all of these things where you're going to be like, what, what's the best for my kid? What should I do? Tof answered them all, not all, most of them in this parent guidebook. Like it is so massively important. It will help any parent out there. I'm not just saying that. Like it, it's the same things that you, that all of you need and all, do I need an advisor for this? Tof gave you so many answers to all these questions that people pay thousands of dollars to advisors to. <laughs> it's and an investment, it for, right? <laughs> for, for basically for free. You know, he could have sold this thing easily for a hundred bucks and he's selling it for nothing. So, um, you know, I got no skin in the game other than just trying to help our listeners. But I, I really think that it's really worth the investment. And I think a lot of parents you, who don't have it yet, if you get it, it will help you tremendously over the years in the hockey world. Yeah, we put a lot of time and effort into this thing, too. We wanted to make sure that it was a great product, something that could be really useful for, for everybody that purchases it. Like, this isn't just one of those, you know, here, take this and blah, blah, blah. No, like, there's a lot of time and effort, a lot of thought. There's clips from our podcast. There's clips from our YouTube series. Uh, there's clips from, you know, everything that we can take that can provide anybody, any kind of hockey parents and perspective that can, you know, hockey parents are stressed. A lot of hockey parents are stressed and they, they are. Every, everybody wants what's best for their kid, but the hockey world and the hockey landscape is changing so much all the time that there's just so many questions to be answered and coming from where I've came from as a former division one college coach, um, someone that also played at the higher levels, someone who's been able to interview people um, at the highest levels and the lowest levels as well. Um, you know, there's just, I think so much important information on there. We encourage everybody to, again, go to the hockey think tank.com, click on the parents tab. It'll take you right to it. And uh, we think it could be a really useful resource uh, for you. Um, but should we get over to, to Patrick? Patrick O'Sullivan Absolutely. now. Let's uh, thank, thank Gelsticks. Actually, Gelsticks just re-upped as our title sponsor. So uh, just awesome guys there as well. John Lonsbury talked to him last week. And uh, they're an awesome, awesome, awesome training aid that you can use. You want to get a better shot. Jeff uses his sticks in the gym, um, you know, to make the guys stronger and, and everything like that. So go to gelsticks.com, G-E-L-S-T-X.com. Get your weighted training stick today. Use the coupon code THINKTANK at checkout to get a nice little discount there as well. Thank you to Train Heroic, Jeff's training app. Nice, clean, easy to use training app that has all of his exercises on there whether you are a player whether you are a team organization uh you know jeff's had everybody from youth players all the way up to junior teams all the way up to professional hockey players using this thing and uh go to train heroic uh look up ripped hockey r-i-p-t hockey jeff lavecchio uh and get his stuff today also very very much as always thank you to all of our listeners for continuing to support our podcast we think you are going to absolutely love this one uh with patrick o'sullivan so without further ado here we go with patrick o'sullivan we are so excited to have back on the Hockey Think Tank podcast for round two, Patrick O'Sullivan. Patrick, how you doing, man? I'm doing good, boys. How many people have you had on twice? Because I think it's a short list. 
It is a short list. It is a short list. Probably like maybe three, four. Wow. Uh, Narado. Yeah. Bob Mancini. Adam Nicholas. Adam Bob Nicholas. Mancini. And uh, we might be forgetting somebody. So very exclusive company we got. Um, um, Shrempy. <laughs> Shrempy we've had on twice too. That's true. <laughs> can't, for, can't forget well, that. Well, still a short list. So good. Good for me. It's quite the honor. Well, I'm glad we're talking about something short that isn't directed right at me. So that's usually the way that it happens. Oh, so very, very good. Self-roasted. Self-roasted. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, man. Well, uh, it's funny. Like when we were talking the last time, uh, we were bummed that we didn't actually get the chance to talk a lot of hockey because I've yeah. really enjoyed getting the chance to talk hockey with you off podcast air and have learned so much from, from you. So uh, I want to get the chance to talk to you and, and our listeners here and, and uh, our boy Vex just, uh, just about the game of hockey. And the way that I wanted to start it out with is, you know, all of us have gone from being a player into being into some sort of role where we're helping kids. Vex is, uh, you know, training, mm-hmm. I'm coaching, you're coaching and doing hockey development as well. So it's, it's, it's a pretty big learning curve going from like in front of the bench to kind of behind the bench or, you know, going through drills in practice through running drills in practice. And so what's, what do you think is like the biggest thing you've learned in going from player to, to player development? That's a good question. I think, uh, I think you always have maybe an expectation for what you think it's going to be like. And then sometimes, sometimes you're right. Sometimes you're wrong. Sometimes it's maybe a mix of what you thought versus what the reality is. I think there's a big difference between coaching on a bench versus doing, um, you know, like player development stuff or, or something where it, it's a lot more individual based. So coaching kids and stuff on a bench is, you know, is, is, is different than like making the transition from player to coaching at the college level on a bench or, or a pro bench or something like that. But I think at the end of the day, you quickly realize that, you need to figure out how each individual works, you know, and, and what, what the relationship is going to be like moving forward between, between you and them. So whether that's from a team standpoint, if you're on a bench or uh, you know, more of an individual standpoint, if you're doing player development stuff, I think it's all the same. And I think the good coaches that are on the bench take kind of try to take, take that same approach. And I guess the number one thing that I thought about was all the things that I didn't like about being a player from uh, interactions I had with, with coaches. So if you build that out backwards, I think you look at communication as a start and, and being honest and direct without being a prick. I think there's, there's a way to do it. And again, obviously the age of the individual you're dealing with is, is super important. And we all know what you can and can't do depending on how old the person is and how honest you can or can't be, or maybe the way that you're speaking and how direct you are and everything else. So if we have a general understanding of that, then I think, um, you know, it, it just, it ends up being, you know, how, how do you think you can help them learn things the best? And, and I, I'd say this also applies to, to uh, like how you look at individual players. And if you're teaching them how to do something within, let's say a team structure of some sort, if all you do is tell them everything, then you're not giving them a chance to, to digest the situation on their own. And, and maybe player A gets the same thing accomplished as player B, but in a completely different way. And I always wondered why coaches didn't ask for more feedback or frankly help from players, especially at, at the highest level, like playing in the NHL, the, the coaches 
rarely use the players as a resource. And I think it's weird. I really do. Like if you look at most NHL teams, the smartest guy involved is a player, certainly as it relates to what's going on on the ice. And, and so that doesn't mean that the player should trump the coach or should outright rule over everything else, but getting some feedback on something more than the power play. I feel like the power play special team stuff, there's a lot of conversation between players and coaches, but like game plan, how soon should we go to something else? If it's not working, like there's a lot of coaches that are stubborn that, that, that refuse to change or adjust. So again, to spin that back to your question to me, I have no problem starting a practice being 20 minutes into it. And, and, you know, I've done a lot of work on my plan and what I thought I was going to do. And then said, listen, this isn't working. Let's do something else. Maybe I need to, to do a better job of finding out what the player wants today. If it's a pro guy and I thought he wanted this and he didn't, well, let's quickly transition. Be, be somebody who can make adjustments on the fly. And I think you give yourself a better chance to be successful. And your job as a coach is to try to make the player uh, a better one. Or if it's a, if it's a younger kid to make the experience more enjoyable and, and to, to see if you can help them have a little bit more fun. Man, you just said like 8 billion things right there that I wish we could unpack them all. I would love to start with, because right away I wanted to hear your thoughts on what you started that with was how you went from player to coach and you thought about what you didn't like as a player mm-hmm. being coached and, and uh, reverse engineering, if you will. Learned that term on Joe Rogan talking about aliens. But anyways, reverse engineering what you didn't like so what did you not like as a player that coaches did to you, for you, not for you, stuff like that? Well, I think it, de- it depends, like, as it relates to me, it depends on the level I was at. And then also kind of, I guess, where you are in the hierarchy of the team as a player. And we know that everybody doesn't get treated the same way and nor, nor should they at the professional level, I don't think. But, um, I felt really restricted as a young player at the professional level because I felt like a couple of the coaches I had didn't know hockey that well. Like, I know that maybe that sounds weird to some people, but I felt like it was almost like you had to do stuff. You guys can probably relate this to like, we're all the same age. We entered pro at a similar time frame where it was like, no matter what your skill set was, you had to come in and play on the fourth line, unless you were like, you know, a superstar or something, but you had to come in and play a certain way. And then if you, if you, if you check those boxes, you got to move up. And I felt like I wasted two years of my career just doing stuff that was mindless. And, you know, I could have been more helpful to the team. I think I could have been uh, also more focused on improving. And I know, I think there's been some changes made in this area, although I don't know that it's far enough along yet based on the people I talked to at the NHL level, but like, can I continue to get better, please? When I'm 20, playing, trying to play in the NHL, like just just being in the lineup to me was, it was like, oh, you're in the lineup, and if you can't figure it out from here, like you're kind of on your own. So, um, I felt like I was, I was. That, I guess that's that's the way I would sum it up best, Jeff. Especially at the beginning, was I felt like I was always on the on my own, trying to figure out what I needed to do, and the only direction I would get would would be from from some older player. So, uh, actually, funny, you know, we're we're recording this today on. Uh, October 6th. Right. So, uh, 
I saw a tweet and it was, had nothing to do with me, but it was Anze Kopitar's first game. And it was also my first game. He scored two goals. I think I had two dump ins in the game, but we made our NHL debut on the same day. And um, it just, it, and it was today. So it just, it struck me. And then this, the, that question and the, where we're going with the, all this stuff is kind of on the, on the top of my mind, because I, I saw the tweet and I was watching him play and just thinking of like, you know, he, he was better than me then and he was more ready to play, but he still had handcuffs on him. Like I remember sitting in meetings and they're like, Hey, like if you're a young guy, you know, be careful making plays on the rush. And I'd be like, what, why? Like what, what if there's, you know, so it, look, I think it depends on the coach you have. And I didn't have a very good one. I thought Mark Crawford was, was an absolutely horrendous coach. And I've said that before uh, on the record. I have no problem mentioning that too uh, at any point moving forward, because that's, that was my experience and like empowering your players to be the best that they can, instead of just fitting into a hole. And I know this is, this is like a very small percentage of the hockey landscape if we're talking about playing pro hockey, but, but I think you can look at it too, for, for younger kids, um, you know, right from, let's say like U8 all the way up is are, are we making players, better because we have their their best interests in mind are we trying to make them the best they can be or are we just doing what we think we can do to fill fill a hole and and maybe we'll win five more games than we did last year and I think that's important because as a coach that means my players are doing well and then maybe if I have interest in the game myself you know I go over to Jet Topher's favorite website myhockeyrankings.com and I see that my team is uh has come a long way. And that, that means that I'm going to maybe get to coach junior next year or something like that. So I think um, it's a long winding answer to your question, Jeff, but I think just not being pigeonholed based on what someone thinks of you, because the viewings of a coach of a player entering a new level would be minimal. You wouldn't have a very big sample, like the, especially at the pro level, like watching a guy who was just drafted. You did you maybe watch two games on video because you certainly weren't there in person. Did you watch me at camp for two weeks? Like you need you need to form or you need much more, much more to work with to form an opinion that is, you know, going to be something that that lasts for more than a week or two. Yeah, it's so funny you say that because like I feel like the best people that are doing that right now. And I'm not familiar with how every NHL team is doing their business and stuff, but I I listen to Ryan Hardy talk about those kinds of things. And you look at, I mean, they have how many kids are the NHL drafts tonight, how many kids are going to go in the draft from, from that team alone. And he talks about how important it is that the scouts are helping out the coaches and the coaches Mm -hmm. are helping out the administrators and like all that kind of stuff. And everybody has to be bought in and contributing to this same mindset where I feel like I, maybe that's happening a little bit more nowadays, but certainly I don't think when we were playing the scouts were the scouts, they did their job. They provided the coaches, the players, then the coaches saw the players and then they formed their own opinions on the players. And there was never really a, you know, a a combination of ideas and a working together. It was just kind of siloed things that happened within programs. And I think what Ryan's doing in Chicago, I mean, he's getting a lot of fanfare right now, especially with, uh, with the draft coming up here, but it's just uh, the, the more you can be on the same page and in from scouting 
to the hockey development department, to the coaching department, how you want to play, how you want your players to play, how each player fits and, and all that kind of stuff. It's just when there's that synergy, it, it's so much better as opposed to like what you were talking about, where like, it's just, you know, everybody forms their own opinions. And then a player is told nine different things about what they need to be as a player <laughs> rather than everybody being on the same page. Yeah. It's like you, you, you put all this, this, time and money and, and effort and, and it's an investment to, to draft a guy or to, to sign a, a free agent or something from junior or college. And then it's like, if you don't, that's just a starting point. If you don't continue to do all kinds of other things, you're not, you're not getting the most out of your, your investment. Right. So, and it's so difficult to, to get, to get anything like today's the draft. Right. So if you, if you look at who actually plays, and, and how hard it is to find players. I just, I, I saw this picture the other day, so I saved it. After you get beyond like the, the, the 15th, 20th pick, you might as well get picked in the seventh round. If you're talking about like chances of playing a hundred games, it's so low. If you're picked after pick 15, 20, you have like a 30% chance of playing a hundred games. And then it slowly drifts down to about 11% if you're picked in the, in the seventh round. So that's a hundred games. I mean, I think the average NHL career is about 200. It's really hard to find players. It's really, really tough. So if we're, we're going to, you know, bounce forward from that general idea, why wouldn't I do significantly more than, than what's been done in the past to, to try to develop? Everyone talks about drafting and development. You're going to win that way. Well, I don't know that there's anywhere close to enough of a, a, de a development mindset and process with, with some organizations. And I know it's changed and um, talk about Hardy in Chicago there. They've, they've done a lot of things differently. I think it's difficult to transfer that to an NHL program, but you can take parts of it for sure. sure. I think you have to, you have to get more people involved. You have to do, uh, you have to do more research into the individual and not think I'm, I'm taking this person and putting them into our program because this is where our program is. And if he doesn't fit in that hole, we'll get rid of him and find someone else. It should be more about what can I do with this individual to make them better? And how can I use their strengths to make us better collectively? I love that. And I, I want to unpack that in two different ways. One of the ways is like, I feel like, especially at the NHL level, teams aren't given the time to be able to actually do that right. Because you have, <laughs> I feel like people coaching at high level hockey, a lot of them are coaching for their job they're not necessarily mm -hmm. coaching how they should right so like if you have like what we're talking about here takes time it takes time to streamline things it takes time you look at tampa bay right now like john cooper this is his seventh year and he's finally won a stanley cup like thank god he didn't get fired after not winning four years ago or three years sure. ago or whatever and so when when you want to do that like it, it like that stuff takes time and in pro hockey and this then the pressure that it takes and, and all that like it, uh, it's tough to actually do that. But then the other side of it too, is like when you're talking about player development, you were talking about playing a hundred games in the NHL. And I was actually talking to an assistant GM in the NHL just the other day. And he was talking about how like hardest part isn't making it. The hardest part is staying. And you hear people mm -hmm. talk about that all the time. And I feel like as people in player development in your, your role right now, working with professional players, but I think it can even translate to the youth levels as well. Like, what does that mean to you? And, you know, it's, it is obviously hard to make it to the higher levels of hockey, but what does it mean to you in the saying of like, it's even harder to stay there once you get there? I think it kind of, uh, it fits into 
the scenario that you find yourself in at the entry point. So I think in some cases, guys would be better off if they didn't play when they did, either because they weren't ready or the coach was the wrong fit or they were coming in and playing a limited role. And all of a sudden you hang around for like 20 games and you've been playing seven minutes a night and you're not on the power play, but you're, you're a good player. And maybe you should be at some point, maybe you would. And it's like now all of a sudden you've played 20 games and people start to form opinions about you. And if you weren't ready to play in the first place, just playing 20 games, maybe that holds you back from playing way more eventually if you came in at the right time at, at the right place like that said too if 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 you do find yourself in that situation and you go down back down to the american league as an example if we're talking about the nhl well if you have decent coaching and and you're trying to get better then eventually you will and and you'll get another chance and that won't completely derail your career or anything like that but i would say what what happens is if you can't get beyond, let's say like, like 200 games, obviously harder to get to than a hundred. And then beyond that, it's like, you've, you've really earned a role and you're, you've been counted on for consecutive year after year to do something that people feel like they have to have at the NHL level. That's the way I look at it. It's like, there's, there's a roster of, let, let's say if there's 25 guys I'm looking at, you need to be in that 18 that I just, as a coach, I cannot not have I have to have those guys in my lineup and what does that look like well for me I actually and I talked about this a little bit earlier at the beginning we're talking about what I had to do to to, to play and and to gain the coach's trust I actually play but I I made the NHL because I could kill penalties which is absurd because I was not that kind of player ever in my life growing up um I killed penalties in junior, but that's just because I played 30 minutes a game and that's just what <laughs> happened, right? Like if you were good and that, especially in, in the OHL, Quebec league, Western league, whatever, you're going to play the whole game. So it wasn't like it was like a specialty or anything, but I figured out because I was smart enough that if I get a chance, I need to do this well, because it's going to get, it's going to let me stay. I wasn't going to get on the power play. Like Kopitar was on our power play as a rookie and there was no one else even close as a young guy. So how am I going to get in the lineup? How am I going to stay? How am I going to get a chance to potentially uh, get on the power play? And if I do, I need, I need to make that happen. But I think that's changed a bit too. Like we've also referenced, I think guys are more allowed to be themselves. I think it's never been easier to, to make the NHL as, as a player, as you are. I think teams are much more open to, just accepting the way guys are and letting them be who they are when they play. Otherwise don't dress them. And I think part of that's because of these days with the cap and how everything works, they need guys on their entry level to score. They need them to be comfortable. They don't need them scared to death every time they touch the puck, which is maybe how it was 15, 20 years ago when we were starting. And I think, you know, if you're, if you're able though, to, to find, something that you can do consistently to just keep hanging around and eventually your ice time gets bumped up. And at the end of the day, like guys, everyone who's playing in the NHL is, is fairly smart. And a lot of guys, uh, I saw this the other day. I forget what it is exactly. It's an absurd number though. It's close to like half the wingers in the NHL played center before that. So you're learning the game. And I know that we may get into some of this stuff later about positions and what does that mean? And do they matter? And, um, I think the more, you know, the more, this isn't revolutionary, but 
the, the different things you can do, the more you can bring to the table, the more comfortable the coach is if a guy gets hurt and they're like, well, I've got to plug this guy in. I don't know if he can do it or not. Well, I trust him. Let's try it. And if you're 20 years old or 21, I mean, that's how you survive. Most guys survive a rookie year. They don't come in and play on the power play from day one, unless you're, you know, like a top five pick kind of guy. And even some of them look at Jack Hughes last year, really good player, going to have a great career. He can barely play. I think he had six goals. So, well, why is that? It's, it's a big adjustment. Um, maybe he would have been better off from a development standpoint, playing on a stronger team where he wasn't being thrown out as much as he was, or, you know, I haven't looked at his minutes and how sheltered he was or anything else, but point being, I think it looks, it looks different for different people, but the guys who, who are able to stay, whether it's at the NHL level or anyone trying to move up, it would be because you can do more than one thing and you're willing to accept the fact that it may not be the way that it's always been for you. And that's why I, that's the number one reason why I think guys that are super talented don't, they don't play in the NHL at all, or they don't play nearly as many games as we think they should based on what their ability is. And it's, it's because they were too rigid and, and couldn't do anything, but the stuff that they were drafted uh, because of. That's so true. And and that flexibility in your game, like you're talking about is, is everything because you need to be like a lot of times when you're getting called up to play at those levels, it's because somebody else is getting hurt. <laughs> so if you're somebody that can fill a lot of different roles, there's a lot of different spots that you can, uh, that you can get into to play rather than, mm-hmm. Oh, I'm an up and down North South winger, or I'm a shut down D whatever. Like the more tools that you have, <laughs> Jeff raises his hand, <laughs> the more, uh, the more tools that you have in your toolbox, the better off it is. And that's why as, as coaches and, and development coaches and stuff, it's so important that we teach these kids so many different tools, um, to, to be able to do that, because I, I think that's what coaches are looking for. They're looking for players that have a, a number one that are smart and competitive, but they can do different things on the ice rather than just be a one trick pony, you know, like Alex Ovechkin, let's call him a one trick pony is about his one trick, but like, he's the best in the world at it. There's very few that can, <laughs> that can do that, but he also does other things too. He competes and he hits and you know, yeah. whatever. Yeah. Um, but so just as coaches, when we pigeonhole and, that, and that's actually a really good segue into something that happened on social media. I don't know if it was a few weeks ago or a month ago or whatever, but you, uh, um, you, you basically said on social media that skating can't be your best attribute if you want to be a good hockey player, <laughs> something, <laughs> something to that effect, especially at the youth levels. And, and people were kind of like going after you and going at you about what are you talking about and all that kind of stuff. So I wanted to have a conversation with you because I know exactly where you're coming from. And now you have more than 280 characters to be able to explain what you mean. Sure. And so, um, uh, cause I think it's, it's very, very true. I think obviously being able to be fast is, is great but it doesn't necessarily translate to maybe some other skills that, that you can learn from not being fast. So um, have the floor and, and explain kind of what you mean by it's, it's not necessarily the best thing to have your best attribute is speed. Yeah. I think what I mean by that is like, if that's the best thing you can do, you're probably not getting a lot done on the ice. And that would be because, Typically good, like there's also people who say, well, like is a good skater doesn't always mean fast, but like, I haven't seen a good skater who's slow either. So like, let's get, to, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> there, there are some people who are quick. There are some people who are fast. If you're talking about doing a lap, which is absolutely useless in real hockey. Right. So it's 10 foot races. It's, can you cross over? Can you get off the wall? 
can you, you know, like, are you crossing over enough if you're going in a straight line? Um, not that you can do linear crossover makes no sense. I don't know why people use that term. If you're crossing over, you're not going in a straight line. That's a different discussion altogether, though. Um, like, point being, as good as McDavid is, as fast as he is, as good of a skater as he is, he's still better at other things than he is at skating. Like, he's smarter. He's a better passer than he is a skater. That's just a fact. Because if he wasn't, he'd be skating himself into trouble all the time. And there, I think there are a lot of players who are really good skaters and they're, they're too fast for their ability to think the game. And it's, it's also why guys don't score as much as you would think they would that play lower in the lineup in the NHL as an example. So People like to talk about the game being quicker than it was, let's say, 15 years ago, because that's when I started. That's when I started playing. And I think maybe if you were to line everyone up on the goal line and do a race with the team from back then and a team from now, would more guys finish ahead of the guys from back then? Probably. But, like, what's happening on the ice? Because to me, I think the game is only as fast as you're perceiving it to be. So that's the other thing too, that I tried to, to talk about in my tweet too, was that like, if, if, you, if I can think more efficiently and quicker, that's a way more valuable skill than it is to just be a guy racing around the ice aimlessly, right? Jeff's nodding his head because I know, I know the way Jeff played. Um, <laughs> that way. It's not, not a shot at you either. <laughs> Listen, if you kill penalties, you have to have some, some sort of an IQ as that's concerned too. But I think if you want to talk about um, what I'm referencing, maybe more is like people's skating ability, hampering their ability to create offense. And I think that idea is something that confuses some people. Yeah. Um, Especially at the youth levels, right? Like at the youth levels, the game is not the game. Like when you're in might squirts, peewees, even bantams, like you can get away with, and you can score 70 goals a year by skating in a straight line and, and going around the D and and scoring. And then those are the kids who are rewarded for doing that. When the coach says, Hey, way to go, like way to beat that guy wide. Those are the kids that are rewarded at that level, but are completely screwed. Once you get to a level of hockey where there's a lot more smart people and people are bigger and stuff, because all they've been programmed to do for so long is be a fast skater and go around people like that. And then you just can't do that at the higher levels of hockey. So now they can't think the game. They can't like in those little 10 foot races and, and go laterally and, and all that they're, 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 I don't want to say they're useless, but like, they just don't have that type of set to be able to, to, to accomplish anything. Exactly. So I I have, there's, I'll just talk about some of the kids on my team and they're nine, 10 years old. So I have a couple kids who we do puck retrievals all the time, right? There's so, so much of the game is played um, between the dots and the board. So we do retrievals off the boards all the time. And I had one kid who, if you did isolated skating drills, he would be the worst defenseman that we have. And he always gets to pucks first. And he actually won't go as fast as he can to a puck because he'll suck a guy in thinking, I can get this guy to overcommit. And then I still get to the puck first and he's out of position and I'll make a play. And, and he, ha- he has already figured out that there is value to that. Okay. And that's something that you, you cannot learn that unless you learn it through playing, through small area games, through, through things like that, where it's decision-based. 
it's taking in information, feeling pressure, you know, knowing that like I could go get that quicker, but then maybe it's easy for the guy on the other team to angle me off. So why don't I wait a little bit? And you see a guy like Kale McCarr does the same thing. I'm not comparing a nine-year-old to Kale McCarr, but he could easily race every puck and then race up the wall and then make a play. But he knows if he slows down a little bit at times, it actually gives his teammates an opportunity to maybe get into a better spot or to suck a guy in and make a flat pass along the ice and try to try, instead of trying to sauce it over a guy's stick or overcomplicate the game, right? So I think that's an example of it too. And you mentioned the, the, the really the, the most important part of this, because once you get to the NHL level, these guys have learned how to play. They've learned um, what works for them and what doesn't for the most part. And they have people helping them with video and you're constantly being shown what you can do better and the rest of it. But it's, it's the coach's responsibility to work with kids who are constantly leveraging skating or size. Because like you said earlier, it goes away, right? Those kids who are really fast to skate down the boards, cut in and shoot it on the crossbar, they're hard to coach. I think, you, I think you have to prevent that. You have to prevent them from doing that in games. That's really tough to wrap your mind around that too. Try, try explaining that to a parent, right? Well, my kid scores four goals a game. He's awesome. Well, in two years, he's not even going to get over the blue line because all he does is skate as fast as he can with his head down, right? So how do you, how do, you do that? It takes... It takes uh, it takes some effort. It takes some communicating, I think, with, with parents and also the player, but also the way you practice. You can get some of those habits out or at the very least introduce parts of the game that are going to show up when they're older. And that's why the small area games and stuff is, is good because it's not that it's perfect. It's not that there isn't other ways to do it. Like if I went out with a kid by himself, I could I could teach him some different things too that, that relate to hockey sense and learning. But small area games and different things like that, where you shrink the space, you, you let the person who doesn't know a lot about hockey still get really good things accomplished with the kids. And that's the part that I think some people can't, they can't understand. It's not that it's perfect or that it's the only way to teach something. It's that literally anyone can do it and the kids will get better. That's the point. It's not that it's magic. It's not that it's better than, than other stuff. Like if I go on the ice with, uh, with one of the NHL guys I work with, like I don't need to do, I don't need to move the net off the, off the crease and do a small area game with them and three other guys. Not that they don't do that. They do go watch an NHL practice and see where the nets are. They're not always in the crease. They're moved around and they're in different spots because, because it, there's, there's more than one thing you can work on. Right. But I think forcing kids to do stuff other than just skate around with the puck is the way that you eventually become a better player. That's just, it's just that simple. And just thinking like, <clears throat> who do you have? What are their skill sets? What do they need to work on to be good next year? Not just this year. Cause like Toph and I have talked about this quite a bit and you know, you made a joke, but like, I'm literally the player you guys are describing right now. Like I was that player we would do. And obviously drills are way better now <clears throat> than when we were kids, but like one-on-one -on -one drill, like, you know, we always used to do those as kids. I would smoke the D 10 out of 10 mm -hmm. times starting off the goal line. I never had to work on stick handling. I never right. had to work on beating a guy in the triangle two on one or a three on two. If I take it wide, I think I thought I was doing the right thing by putting my head down and going far post and trying to create a rebound or just scoring. And then, you know, you, you get older and you're like, Oh my God, I can't do any of this anymore. I haven't learned how to stop, how to pull a fake on the D man to pull up by myself ice 
then give myself time to get my head up and look for the next wave. Luckily, like I was able to kind of teach myself those things later in life, but, but like, it was very hard for me to do that because my whole youth hockey career, it was, well, I can just beat everybody wide. And so like, I know what you're talking about. And when I started playing small area games in juniors in college, like that really helped me. I never had to stop and start quickly. I never used quote unquote agility on the ice. It was always long, powerful strides, straight lines. And, and it didn't translate to the next level. Like you're so right. So the coach is listening to this. Don't just keep applauding those kids. I, for, I, I challenge you to challenge them. That kid who's always scoring three goals a game by beating guys wide or just taking it wide and he has a great shot and he just shoots it and beats a goalie. Make him make a pass. Make him pull up. Make him use other skills in practice in a game because it's not just what is he doing today or this year. It's you want to help that kid be better for next year and the year after next year. Right. So – I'm going to ask you this, Jeff. I've heard you, I've heard you talk about this before and it relates to what you're talking about as, as, as a, like as a player and how you learn the game and you're really fast and you play with Paul Stastny, who's an unbelievable player. And you say you used to just sprint behind the D and get the puck. If you were told that you were never allowed to do that, you always had to come underneath, that would have helped you. It would have, you would have probably would have scored less goals when you were 10 years old, but you would have been forced to play in traffic, supporting the puck, and you wouldn't be, you know, getting a pass also from someone who is going to be an NHL player one day. Like he's also making that play that most people couldn't make back then either. Right. So it's almost like a double, it's a double whammy of things that are never going to happen. Yeah. And as you move forward. Right. So that's why too, it's like, I think when, when you take space away from people, you can still have the better kids affect it more than they would otherwise. And if you're at the bottom hanging on for dear life, then maybe you're at the wrong level anyways. And it, it doesn't matter the format then at that point. Like if you can't, if you're not involved enough or you're not getting enough reps or all you can do is get rid of the puck the second you touch it, then, then I guess you're at the wrong level to begin with. And, you know, you don't have these egregious things to, to either over-focus on or need more of in a, in a practice setting, right? If you're an elite player and, and you're just skating down the boards and shooting, that's a problem. If you're never touching the puck, that's a problem too. If you're scared to do anything with the puck because all you do is turn it over, that's a problem. But you can find out a lot about yourself and where you're at from a standpoint of what matters more when you're forced to, to play in traffic and what that looks like really doesn't make much of a difference because the science proves that, right? So, my brain is going to benefit more from just playing than it's going to do from isolated stuff that is maybe the person helping me is super intelligent, but I'm 10 years old and I can't take in 90% of the, the one-on-one -on -one lesson that I'm doing anyways. So I think that to me is, is what sticks out the most about stuff like this as it relates to kids playing is that the game teaches them how to play. It's, and, and I know there's a lot of people who think they're really smart that, that are in hockey that I taught them this and that. And I had this guy since he was little and now he's this or that or whatever. If that's all it took, then, then where is everyone else who's had these <laughs> special coaches? Because where are they? I don't know who they are. I've never heard of them. You know, like these coaches aren't parading their rosters of 50 people deep. I took these guys to the NHL. I had little Johnny since he was six and he's only in the NHL because of me. It's not the way it works. So they're good because they play. They're good because they've learned the game under situations where 
they've been under pressure and they've had no room and they've had to value protecting the puck and creating space for themselves and also battling to get it back. That's one thing I think kids don't understand enough. And it's partly because of how most of them practice is when I lose the puck, how hard do I work to get it back? Am I going to float back 200 feet to my own end or am I going to work to get it back maybe 10 feet away from where I lost it? That's if you true. never show them that that has value, they never understand it to have it in the first place. Well, let's, let's dig into that a little bit because that's one thing we wanted to talk about here today. And, and that's like defining what it means to be good defensively, because I think there's so many different ways to interpret that based upon who you talk to and what you value and, and all that kind of stuff. So like, you know, for you, is that part of what makes you good defensively? Is that ability and, and will and want and smarts to be able to get the puck back when you lose it? I, I think so. I think it has to, I think there's, if you look at some of the, the way that the defense is um, quantified now, like at the professional level, there are certain categories of people who are literally clock killers. That's what they are. And they're good at it. And they keep the puck really far from their own net. And if you look at, um, you know, their defensive value and the varying metrics. I don't want people's eyes to roll back in their head. I'm not going to start naming all the different ones. People may or may not know of them. It's irrelevant, but there are certain things that say like, you know, you, you want to know why some, some like weird low impact perceived to be low impact players get their names thrown out in the conversation for the selfie trophy. It's because if you look at what they actually get done on the ice, they're never out for goals for chances against like, there's guys, there's guys who are just good at keeping the puck away from their net who are the very same guys, some of them, not all, but some, if you were to watch them in their own end, you would say he's not overly good in his own end. Like it's not like he has a magic stick or he's just unbelievable at blocking shots. There are some of those guys too. My question then would be though, if you're over-reliant on stuff like micro stuff, like blocking shots, winning puck battles, blocking passes, and it's close to your own net. Why is it so close to your own net all the time? So I, I personally would rather defend way up the ice. And yeah, do you need to be able to do all that stuff? Of course, you're going to be in your own zone and it, and it has value. But if you're over-reliant on defending that way versus giving no space or a guy like Dougie Hamilton, who every time he's on the ice, he's shooting the puck at the net. What does that mean? He couldn't be... A, farther from his own net if he tried to be unless he was a forward so would, would like would i rather have dougie hamilton or like i don't want to disparage anybody who's playing in the nhl but there are lots of d who just back in and and take shots off their ankles and then they struggle to the bench and you know jeff like 12 for two we all played you're banging on the bench you're like great job and then like half the guys on the bench are like why are you backing in so far <laughs> that's what i stuff like that i used to think about and 10 years ago i don't think it was looked like the game was looked at like this in that fashion back then at all, because you just look at the makeup of D in particular. And there were four or five who we would call physical. Um, I'll be polite and call them not puck friendly and guys, guys who are like, Oh, he's a warrior. And yeah, you are a warrior, but I would rather you come around the net and put it on my stick so we can break out. Right. Then you come around the net rim it and I get run from behind and I'm 5'10", and I got, you know, Dion Phaneuf trying to break my neck. And then it ends up in our own zone, and you block four shots. We come to the bench, and everyone's like, hey, great shift. You blocked four shots there. And then I get I get shit from my coach because I couldn't get the puck out on the boards. But you gave me a grenade. 
Like, you tell me what's better. Is it is it better to be a guy who can skate and move the puck and keep it down away from his net and also be able to defend when when needed, but not if the best. It's like the skating thing. If the best thing about you is that you block shots, you're not good. I don't think you're a good player. I really don't. Like that's that's my viewpoint of hockey. And there are some guys who are good at hanging out of the puck. And there's some guys who are good at just at defensemen that get a lot of shots and the pucks constantly in the other team's zone. And there's other guys who are good at defending the more traditional way. And there's some, some who are a mix and some who are a mix and you'll hear these names and you'll know why, right? Couturier, Sorelli, Jared Spurgeon, who's maybe the, the most underrated player in the NHL. Oh, I think he's a, probably a top five defenseman. And and that's maybe, and some, some of that is analytics based. And if you don't like those, you probably think I'm insane but he's unbelievable at hockey and he doesn't get nearly the, the credit that he deserves. Like he is a much better player than Drew Doughty today. Way better. Statement cotton. <laughs> I'm telling you, go watch the games, go look at the numbers. He's, he is, he gets way more done. And that's not to say that five years ago, that was the case, but as of today, he's a really good player. So it's just like, well, what, what, what's valuable, what actually matters in a game. And I think that like goal and chance suppression, the suppression of shots in general is a better predictor of goals against than actually goals against. It's just like the other way around too, scoring. So if I had 25 goals this year going into next year, if I want to know what the the highest percentage of what I'm going to do again, I would want to look at my shots and shot locations versus my goals total. That's not a consistent predictor of what's going to happen moving yep. forward. And I think that's to the lesson applied with, with defending and what that looks like. So that's great. What do you do with, you want to talk about how you teach that to kids? Well, you teach them to be extremely aggressive with their gap and you constantly teach them to, um, if you get beat, get beat far from our net, because then we can recover and you have your buddies to recover for you as well. Like if I'm going to step up and get beat at the red line, my defense, my partner's underneath and, and my forwards back pressure so hard that it doesn't make a difference anyways, versus backing in and being scared of getting beat. And, and, and now we're just receiving the play, receiving the play all game long. And then from there, they'll get beat, but you learn and you can back it out from that way. Instead of, you know, Tover as a coach or Jeff as the player, you play with guys where you're like, I just wish you were like, you're way more assertive getting someone who's 15 or 16 and trying to teach them to be more aggressive or assertive is tough because they've learned to play for 10 years, a certain way. And instead of oftentimes, I think backing them down a little bit uh, tends to be easier in my experience anyways. For sure. It's so funny that we're talking about this right now because we had our first games with my team just a couple weekends ago. I coach an 18 new team and we went 0 and three on the weekend and a big part of the reason why we went 0-3 is exactly what we're talking about right now. Like all we've talked about in practice with our D is gaps. Get up, get up, get up, right. get up, get up, get up, get up, get up. And we, it's funny, like we let up so many odd man rushes. It was ridiculous because they, we were so over aggressive with it. And, and we'll learn and we'll teach it. But at the same time, like some of the conversations I'm having with the players right now is like, this will make you better. 
Like it's okay that we're letting up odd man rushes and we're losing in, in September or October. Like by the time we hit January, this will be like second nature to you guys. And our, you know, our F3 is going to be back because they're going to do a better job of coming back, which will allow you to be more aggressive. And right. we're going to deny so many more passing uh, options because you guys are going to be up on players rather than just sitting back and again, doing exactly what we've been talking about for the last five, 10 minutes. And I feel like, you know, it's, it's tough as a coach because you got to be okay losing. And, and I've talked to the guys about that because they're pissed after the games. I'm like, guys, we're losing these games right now. I get it. But we, and you guys will be much better for this in a, in a month or two when this becomes second nature. And after we practice it and you guys see it on video and stuff, and then we go in and I showed them the clips on video and this is what it was. This is why the mistake happened. This is why they capitalized on it. And this is what we could have done better and just teaching and coaching. And it goes back to it too. Like what we were talking about, I got about forwards and skating in a straight line and, and not learning the game and being able to translate that to the older levels when the game changes. I feel like gaps for D is the same thing. When I watch youth games, you know, I'll see, I'll see a breakout and the opposing team's D is at the far blue line, just waiting to accept that rush because they don't right. want to get beat. And, and so like, that's fine. And you might not get beat in, in squirts or peewees or whatever, but once you get to the higher levels, like you're screwed if you don't know how to, you know, play a gap and stuff like that. So, um, it's just this whole conversation is coming full circle for me. I'm going to have to have my players listen to this right now because (laughs) it's, uh, it's, it's important. You have to be able as a coach, like you have to be able as a player to want to do those things, but as a coach, you have to be okay in doing it in practice. And then when it happens in the game, you gotta be like, okay, this is just a learning, a learning opportunity for the kids. And we got to teach them now because this is going to make them better. If they have hopes and dreams and aspirations of playing at the next level. Let me just add one thing real quick here to to this too, because I don't probably want to move on or get going. I know it's almost been an hour, but like the, the way I teach this too. And I think this is something that can, you can influence hockey sense. People always ask, well, how do you do that? It's complicated. Well, if you teach kids, the third closest player to the puck at all times has a lot of responsibility at all times. The third closest player. Now, at, at, depending on how old they are, that can be real tough to calculate for some of them. But what it does is it's not only so if the D steps up and well, he's, he better have looked over his shoulder and at the very least have one player, either a forward or a D supporting him. But if there's another guy who's coming, who, who knows, I, I have a lot of responsibility now in, in this play as well, because if they chip it, the closest guy is retrieving it. And now what? Where's the third? Where's the next guy? Yeah. So that's how I try to teach, teach them how to play hockey. And then it's less about F1, F2, F3. It's just space and players. And you owe your teammate. You owe him the effort to go to where you need to go to, to help him out. That's also the way I try to talk to the kids is that you need to do way more, way more for the guy with the puck or the closest defender to the puck than you think you do. And, and from there, I think you can start to generate some habits and some consistency that also frees up the guy closest to the puck to be aggressive, whether you're, whether you have it or not. Right. I'm going to be decisive. I'm going to make a choice. Maybe I'm going to hang on to it longer than I, than I typically would because I know I have support and it's not just one guy. It's there's another one that's valuing what's going on right now, even if he's far, far away and recovering back or whatever. Right. It, it, it forces more of them to think rather than just the two closest guys. For sure. I mean, in youth hockey, there's so many passengers 
and we don't coach enough the people yeah. without the puck. And I, I love what you said about the third guy because it's so true because um, let's talk about D retrievals for a second. You know, you got the, the one guy that's on his gap. So his partner's got to go get the puck. And we always talk about that partner has got to be the one working hard to, to go get that retrieval. But then what about that other guy? That guy's just as important because now he's got to be that first pass for that guy who's going to retrieve to get the puck. And right. I haven't talked about ne- that. So I'm sure it's never do. Yeah. It's ne- the, the, the one other thing too, I'd say is that it's never actually like a one-on-one. And that's why we don't do Jeff, that drill you mentioned where you, we used to go straight down the boards for the whole length of the rink one-on-one that never happens because it's never actually one-on-one anyways. There's always other guys on the ice, right? There's always a stick that comes out of nowhere. There's always a second guy that's coming or someone falls and it turns into a one-on-two or three-on-two or whatever. Right. So having them aware of that too within the practice. And that's why the drills two on two, three on three, all that stuff. And, and whatever that looks like really doesn't matter because it's about spacing and reading what's happening. And like, you know, I personally don't think there's enough, like I, as someone who played in the NHL, who was, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to pump my own tires, but <clears throat> fairly, fairly smart too. Like that was a big reason why I could play was because of my IQ. Like, I wasn't worried about where people's feet were pointing. Like, I just don't, I, I always chuckle. Like, and, and, and there's some people that I respect that, that have said that, like, I want to get guys feet turning this way or that way. Or like, I don't know, man, like there's, there's a lot going on and, and I'm just looking for space. I'm looking for a gap to move the puck. I'm looking to jump. I'm hiding behind someone and jumping to space. I'm trying to throw a pick without getting a penalty. Like, being on the ice against really good players, maybe at a lower level, you can influence stuff like that more when it's slower. But like, I would so never you- teach, I would never teach anybody that, that I'm working with to, to look at the other team's feet and, and, and make decisions based on where their toes are pointing. Because do you know what? There's a lot of guys. And, and again, this is more to the, to the higher levels. I'll purposely stand the wrong way and know what you're about to do because I'll put my stick in the right spot. I don't need to put my feet in anywhere to be in the right position. If I know what I'm doing, I used to do this all the time on the penalty kill. Talk about Dion for nothing. I don't want to pick on him, but he would easily fall into the trap of thinking he had a lane for a one-timer. I would stand out of his lane and then just take a step into the lane when he was shooting. He couldn't compute over time that that you know and like lots of people were doing it which is why if you know if you notice his career arc by the end of his career he wasn't on the power play because all he could do was just hammer bombs into it when he was young they'd go into the net and eventually that turned into going into people's shin pads i'm not disparaging him the guy had a better career than me trust me that's you know that's that's not my point but what i'm saying is like everything's happening too quickly i need support i want two-on-ones i don't want one-on-ones stop teaching people to beat other guys one-on-one it's fine if the situation presents itself, especially below the dots, but I'm, I'm creating space on a one-on-one either to get a shot or to make a play, not to beat people. You don't get points for stick handling around people. You don't get a reward for that unless you're putting yourself into a spot to make a better play. That's yeah. it. That, that's, that's really what it comes down to at, at the NHL level and thinking I'm going to dictate what like four other guys on the ice are doing. I, that's, I don't know about that. It doesn't, it doesn't, it never happened for me playing. And I think maybe if you're on the power play, you could pull people and, and really suck someone out of position with, with a couple quick plays or something. But 
if I'm handling the puck, I mean, is it flat? Like, is it flat? That's seriously what I'm thinking about. And what do I, where are my options? Can, am I, first of all, I need to protect it. Who's, is anyone coming to help me? Cause oftentimes guys have the puck for like half, like one and a half seconds max on their stick. And then it's, then it's moving anyway. So like how much influencing are, are you actually doing? Right. I just, it, I would be careful applying logic that maybe, you know, 0.1% of the NHL players, which are already 0.01% are doing to like the common player. And that touches real, real quick too on another thing. Like it's okay. It's okay to teach a kid who's not super offensive to, to be better defensively. Like, like to reiterate his strengths. We don't need to teach everyone to try to be Connor McDavid. We don't want that. And there's also not one of seven or eight of those on every team. And I don't mean him. I mean the type of player. It's okay to teach a kid how to kill penalties really well. That's valuable. That's, that's a skill. That's a skill. Not everyone needs to stick handle and shoot the puck off the crossbar every shift. Cause you can't anyway. Trust me, you won't, there's so few of those guys who are allowed to do whatever they want on the ice as you go up levels that thinking that's the goal for everyone when they're 10 makes no sense to me. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's okay. You don't want to give them roles when they're 10, (laughs) but some of them clearly play a certain way and it, and it, to continue to enhance that and, and give it, you know, to water that and see it develop is fine too. It's like some kids are defensemen. They just are. That's how they see the game. Like, stop thinking we need to rotate them as forwards. Like, let him play D. He loves it. He's having so much fun playing D. That's what this is about, too, right? More than anything else with kids is the fun part. Instead of thinking, I need to dot all the I's and cross the T's. And by the end of the year, guess what, guys? My kids, they played all the positions. Well, half of them hated it. Maybe some need to rotate. The other half are just who they are. Let them be. Let them, let them play. Teach them how to play the position they really like. Interesting. Interesting. I want to go back because I think this is really important. It's something I talk about all the time, but I haven't really found the best way to really communicate it or really teach it. And that's um, finding open spaces, just like spaces on the ice, getting to points of support, getting to open ice where you can get the puck and stuff like that, especially offensively, like, you know, for you, and it's something that you clearly value a lot as do Jeff and I, how, what do you think the best way to teach finding those open pockets of ices. And and you even mentioned something along the lines of, you know, hiding behind a defender and then at the right time, getting to that spot when you know that spot's going to be open and stuff. How do you, how do you teach that to, to players moving up? I think it starts with the ability to move the puck as a line. So the reason you can't find space if you don't have the puck is probably because the guy who has it is doing things he shouldn't be doing, like trying to beat people one-on-one. If you're going to stick handle and you know especially at the higher levels you're going to stick handle trying to beat people everyone else just sinks and they know this guy's going to work he's going to work himself right into trouble and we're going to steal the puck and, and we're gone so like if you can move the puck then all of a sudden you start to create situations where you're forcing the other team to make adjustments or to switch off players right so you can cycle all day long in a circle in the corner And, you know, good teams will just let you do it until they see a time to step in and pick off a pass or whatever else. Right. So if you can force the other team 
to make switches. And that's why the Sedins were so good. That was an absolute nightmare. On more than one occasion, I stepped on the ice for 10 seconds and went off the ice. <laughs> oh, like my, like, oh, I got a cramp or something just because those guys were going on. You did not <laughs> want to play them. You did not. When I was in Edmonton for a couple of years, we were absolutely God awful. And we played Vancouver, felt like 10 times a year. And, and those guys were just unbelievable. And it's because they were constantly going in opposite directions. They were never going the same way. So the other team has to switch and they're picking guys and like using the back of the net is something that is not taught enough. And <clears throat> it's fine. So we changed sides. So, so like now what, what are our options? So that's, that's one thing where, you know, I'm big on like letting them learn and, and everything else, but sometimes showing something to somebody, we can fast forward like six months. Like if I just show you that there's only really four ways you can come in off the blue line as a D to get into spots, like, why don't we do that? Cause there's only, there's only so many ways to do it. Like, so, so, so outright saying no structure, no help, no info. I don't like that either because I think in a lot of ways, a little bit of uh, structure or a little bit of, of direction actually frees people up more than they yeah. would be otherwise because you're Concept, you know there's, yeah. right so i don't buy into that either open the door let them go kind of thing like to, to what degree i don't know so i think it's there's always there's always layers to that and, and you need to know your group and specifically where maybe some teams need more direction than others but you want to talk about getting space offensively if you're not forcing the other team to 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 make choices and that's by puck movement and hanging on to the puck. It's not from stick handling. It's not from making people's toes point to the roof or something or whatever. Like <laughs> it's it's moving the puck and well, it's knowing, knowing when to move the puck too, right? Like sure. I, I think one of the things that you know Jeff and I have kind of beat the drum on is the the whole notion of how playing fast is so important. Play fast, play fast, play fast, play fast. But the best way that you can actually open up time and space is to bring people to you, create less time and space, and then you yeah. create more time and space for somebody else. So you think about like in the corner getting like having poise with the puck and causing those switches. And maybe there's two guys going to you instead of just one. And that frees up somebody else in some space somewhere else. One of the ways that I've seen it a lot, especially in my practices, we do a lot of rush type stuff and you know, that they were doing the typical thing every time one guy goes center lane drive, the other guy cut to the back, which is a fine play and it, and it can work and stuff. But I said, okay, I, I stopped because they weren't having a lot of success with it. And I said, okay, Every time you guys have to do this now, you have to bring the puck across the blue line, you have to cut to the middle, and you have to skate towards the opposite defenseman on the three-on-two every mm -hmm. time. And it was amazing how many things opened up just based on doing those little kinds of things where you got to show some poise and you got to do things a little bit differently. And um, I just, yeah, it, it's there's there's a, there's kind of an art to that, I think, in in coaching, in how much do you teach? Because you can learn some of that stuff as we talked about at the beginning of this from small area games and just letting them go. You, I think mm -hmm. you talked about the, the one kid who brought the kid to him and then escaped and, and was able to make a play, but also mm -hmm. there's some different concepts like you're talking about that you can introduce to these kids that will, uh, that will allow them to have some success as well. Yeah. I think letting them be super aggressive offensively with the idea that if we lose the puck, we have to work that much harder to get it back. Yeah. And let your D go any, let your D go all over the place in the offensive zone. Just let them go. And slowly they'll figure it out. 
there's two or three of these things that work. Show them a couple, the, the down the wall scissor, the jump into the slot one, just to, just to give them some basics. And then you'll have some of them that read it certain ways and some that read it other ways. And some that, you know, like, I don't let my D shoot the puck unless they can get to the top of the circle. We don't, we don't allow point shots because they can't get it to the net anyway. Mm-hmm. You know what I tell our D is we just block shots. Guys, they're nine years old. Remember, they're nine. Our D don't tie up. We just block shots. If anyone shoots, we just step in front of it. We're not worried about getting under guys. If the shot gets to the net, then we, we find sticks and stuff. But we're looking to step in front of pucks. All kids want to do is take wrist shots when they're little. So our D, aren't, we don't allow them to shoot the puck. You can shoot for sticks. If you're able to walk in and tee it up from the top of the circles, at this point, these kids are starting to be able to shoot the puck and score from there. But the goalies now at that age, just stand there. If you have a clear shot or even with a screen from the, from like close to the blue line as a little kid, they just, the goalies just stand there. So like you want to talk about teaching with constraints and practice, do that, add that into games, give them little rules that when they're older will become something that's irrelevant and they can drag it to the middle rifle it all day. If they have traffic, go right ahead. That's, you're never going to prevent that from happening. They can't take they can't take slap shots. They can't do any of the stuff that eventually they will be. So why are we pretending that they can? Teach them stuff that you can only learn now. And 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 if you know what you're doing, you know when certain stuff becomes relevant and when certain stuff starts to become less relevant and what's useful and what isn't. So that's, you know, like I I don't think you want to overdo it one way or the other. I think you try, yeah. you try to find the middle ground between a little bit of structure, mostly freedom. The farther you get from the net, the more they should feel like they can do whatever they want with the puck. That's, that's kind of the, the general mindset that, that I try to, to make sure that they have, because you owe it to your goalie to, to have some respect for the puck around your net. And there's a general way to operate in your own zone to get the puck quick. And then we can go. If you just want to be aimless in your own zone, you just play the whole game down there. That's no fun. So I think you give them a little bit of structure too in their own zone, just how to cut guys off, how to angle. And like I, uh, I might coach my younger son's team too. And they're, they're like a year younger and just teaching them how to angle. It's funny when they play against kids who don't know how to do it, it looks like two completely different games are happening. Right. All of a sudden kids have sticks and lanes and stuff and they look like, (laughs) <laughs> they look like little NHL players and half of them don't even know what they're doing, but they know that their stick should is in the middle where it should be. And all of a sudden a pass goes off and they get a breakaway and they're like, Oh wow. Like that's how they've learned. It wasn't because you showed them something like I could show them endless clips of Mark stone, stealing pucks off people like in the neutral zone. There's but a lot if, of those. <laughs> right. But, but if it doesn't, if it doesn't result in like a scoring chance for a child watching that, it doesn't have as much value. Right. Yeah. You need to get them, I think you need to get them, when little kids in particular, to like to, to hold value in stuff like puck battles or back checking or whatever. If they know it's important and they feel like they owe it to their teammate to do it, then they'll do it. Well, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier about like what does it mean to um, to be good defensively. I think as a coach and as a scout and people that have watched higher level hockey, you just kind of see certain things that people can do, or you've played against certain guys you just absolutely hate to play against. 
and it's uh, you know, some of the metrics that you talk about, you know, blocking shots and those kinds of things defensively. It's, it's like the guys that don't have to really play defense because they're always in position and they're not allowing you to do what you want to do offensively. Like mm-hmm. those are the ones that are the worst to play against and are the best defensively. And, and sure. you, you don't notice them that much, but there's a reason why you don't notice them that much is because they're, nothing happens when they're on the ice <laughs> because it's not coming back their way. Um, and it's just, yeah. you know, I think those, those little things like the angling thing that you're talking about, like I, I was picturing it in my head as you were talking about these little eight year olds with, with like sticks on the ice, forcing people into certain areas. Mm-hmm. And those are like little things, but those are like big things, very, very big things that people would talk about make really good hockey players. Yeah. It doesn't, it also stuff like that doesn't, uh, limit them in any way mm-hmm. so being able to, to understand that too may, may be a bigger challenge for some people than others because you don't want to teach stuff that is forcing them to do things that maybe they wouldn't want to do that maybe they could come up with their own solution on their own that would be better than the one that you're giving them which i think adults struggle with in general because they're children well i hate to break it to you but there's there's some kids on the ice that are actually smarter than the people coaching them and I apply that same thing, like we mentioned at the beginning of this, to players that aren't used enough by coaches at all levels. And like, hey, what, what are you seeing here? Mm-hmm. What what would you do? I think part of that's an ego thing. Part of it is needing probably to feel like, I'm talking about the older older ages now, to feel like you're the guy in control and you need them to know that or whatever. But um, when it comes to the stuff with the little kids, like it's amazing how how much some of them can take in and how quickly they learn based on what, what works and, and what doesn't work. And, and it's funny because you do, you do some of the drills that, that we do, whether it's small area game or simulated like four check in a small area game, something like that. And it's about angling. And if you don't do it right at the beginning, it creates a chain of events where you end up gets getting scored on. And that one egregious play where all the coaches celebrated the goal and made a big deal about it. Like it doesn't happen ever again because they know it doesn't work. Like it was so blatant that it just never, it's never going to happen again. Unless you like digging the puck out of your own net, you learn to, to stop, you know, to, 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 to do things that give yourself a better percentage of being successful. You know, we were talking earlier, Jeff, I'll let you go in a second, but it's funny talking about this. Like we were talking earlier about, about things that like coaches did that really pissed you off. Like one of the things was, it's a little bit what you're talking about right now. A coach was like telling you to do something a certain way. And it just like, he kept like just giving it to you. You got to do it this way. 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 So you do it that way 50 times and it doesn't work 50 times, but on time 51, it works. Right. <laughs> see, see, you just had to listen to me. And it's like, well, I'm, I'm batting, you know, 0.05% right. here. Uh, it, it hasn't really been working for this long. So no, I don't see still. <laughs> well, I think that goes back to what, what, uh, Pat's saying about like, just being aggressive further away from your net, making, making an error, making an aggressive error. And the further you do it away from your net, the more time you have. And if you teach your players to really go back after, if you lose a puck, you make a mistake. Like that to me sounds so simple. And I'm thinking along the same things that you were talking about there, Toph, like, like just 
a coach being like, you got to do it this way. And then I'd go out on the ice sometimes into my head. I'm like, well, I got to do it this exact way. Yeah. Whereas if I would have just like trusted my instincts, what I was reading and then just like done what I, whatever I thought made sense and, mm-hmm. and be aggressive, I probably would have made less mistakes than had I been thinking, oh, coach wants me to do it this way. And then if I was making, if, if he, he would have said something simple, like if you're going to make a mistake, be aggressive and the further away from your net, take more of a risk or a chance or whatever, that would have made so much more sense to me than me being on the ice thinking, where's the dot? Where's my body supposed to be? Where am I, you know, like those kind of things. And I think that's very simple, but from a coaching philosophy, if you could get like 13, 14 year olds to think that way, I think that the game, like the way that they think the game would be so much smoother and faster and, and a simpler way to, to, to go about it. It's more predictable too for your teammates. That's that's why I think that's why I decided to do that with the little guys. It's just A, you learn to work. A, you learn to work smart. Or sorry, B, you learn to work smart. Could you tell I barely went to school? <laughs> just learning my alphabet now. And and so from there though, too, it's like that second, third guy now where where I'm able to make decisions. Like that's that's what hockey IQ is. It's recognizing the puck is here, player A, B, and C, and D are there. I've seen this how many times? What are the odds of, you know, option, you know, one, two, and three happening? And you calculate all that real quick. That's it. That's all it is. And I think learning it through aggression instead of backing off all the time or being confused, like, do I go or not? I don't know. Why don't you go and find out? It's like in some drills, you know, you, you get a kid who's had a coach that's constantly, you know, you're going around this cone and you're going to do this. And then I'm going to tell you that the only way you're allowed to shoot it is by pulling it into your feet. Right. And then go to the next cone and do this, that, or whatever. And then you, you know, you, you have a drill that's open-ended battle-based and they're like, well, what do I do then? And you're like, I just say, I don't know. Like you should, why don't you find out? <laughs> Why don't, why don't you go, why don't you find out and you tell me what you should do in that situation? Because I can't, I can tell you what I would do, but I don't know what. But what you're you nine do. and I played in the NHL. You're probably not going to be able to do what I would do there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> if it was me, I would shoot it off the goalie's forehead right into the net and make his parents, <laughs> make his parents go crazy in the crowd, but I'm not allowed to do that. So you can, you can decide what you think you should do based on the pressure that you're looking at and where your teammates are. That's awesome. Hey, Vex, as he was going through his ABCs right there, I was thinking of uh, home alone. Were you thinking of home alone too? A yeah. one, two, two D. D. <laughs> Buzz. Classic. Wow. Awesome stuff. That's the best way to list stuff. I love that you, you send a text like that to somebody and they're like, what is this? You automatically know that they're, uh, I don't like someone. You don't get it. <laughs> they don't get that a two D joke. I don't want to know. Him. <laughs> how, how about, how about, uh, at Muncie's wedding, his brother in, uh, in the speech actually said that I can't remember what it was. Maybe like, you know, wait, awesome. this is going to be a great marriage. He's like, Hey, <laughs> it's perfect Muncie. So, well, awesome stuff, guys. This was great. Get being able to talk some hockey. I, I got a lot of notes here from some of the stuff that we were talking about. This was great stuff. So, um, thanks for coming on Pat and, uh, let's continue to keep making, keep making us better and, and, uh, always enjoy these conversations. So appreciate you coming on and, uh, happy, uh, happy first. What was it? First, it's the anniversary of you playing your first NHL game today. Oh, shit. yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate that. Um, 
some good dump ins. Maybe I'll go watch the highlights later and relive that. Get screened we, out on the bench a bunch of Dolph, times. Let's get into that because I don't know how many guys we've had on here that we've we've talked about their first game. Like, what did it feel like? Toph and I, I mean, I got to play preseason. I don't mm-hmm. count that, obviously. It didn't count. Toph didn't either. So, like, how effing cool was it, like, going into the locker room and you're like, I'm playing my first NHL game tonight? Yeah, it's cool. Like, <clears throat> I, you know, the quick version, cause I know we're going to get going, but like, you know, you, you wake up in the morning, you're like, I guess this is happening. Like I'm in the lineup, you, you know, you go to the, like, unless you're like, a, again, like if you're a superstar, that's a completely different set of, of uh, experiences. But, you know, like I was, I did play our first, that was our first game of the season. So I hadn't been scratched or anything yet, but um, you go to the rink, you check like the lineups on the board. Okay. I guess it's happening. Morning skate is game seven, of course. Just absolutely flying. Uh, I might, I might have, uh, yeah, I might have used more energy in that than I did in the actual game. And then, of course, it's you know, you're, I think you're nervous all day. Like we only had two rookies on that team. It was just me and Kopitar, so we spent a lot of time together. And so we were making our debut that same night and stuff. So we were talking all day. I didn't even attempt to take a nap. wasn't wasn't gonna happen. And we're at the rink early and everything else. And like, warm up's cool. I remember being the most nervous I was, was like on the bench before my first shift. Right. And then I think I was like the second or third line to go out. And then at that point, right. When, before you go on the ice, you're like, I got to, like, I guess I got to play. Right. And then all of a sudden, like for me, as soon as I got on the ice, I was fine. And then you just play. Like I played at that in the American league or junior, or any other level. Um, but I think that's probably the, the normal experience for most guys unless you're Kopitar superstar kind of player starting knowing like he's probably thinking I can't wait to get out there I'm gonna like roast Scott Niedermeyer because we, <laughs> we played in Anaheim we played in Anaheim right that was the year or two that they they ended up winning the cup so they were really good they were stacked and I'm like scared to death to do anything with the puck and um just trying to like just get on the ice make a maybe make a play not spend too much time in my own zone and get off. Like I'd like, I may go back and check my shift length to see if that's possible. Because <laughs> there's no way it was over 40 seconds. And then, you know, once you get going a couple shifts, it's like, you feel, you feel like you're part of it and it's normal. Awesome. So cool. Awesome so cool, stuff. Man. Well, good stuff. We might have to uh, find some footage, some game footage, try and get some stuff and uh, put it up on social media. A couple of those nice dump-ins that you had that you mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> that that may be tough to find. <laughs> you can find Kopitar's goals. Those there we go. Are, those All are right. easy to find. <laughs> good stuff. Well, thanks again for coming on. Yeah, and, uh, yeah we'll talk soon. Take this.